0: The following resources presented by the Counseling and Conference Services of IOM America. Welcome to Identity Matters Podcast. Hi, my name is Steve Finney, and I will be your host. But again we want to welcome you as our listener. We have been uh, going through a mini series called True Grace to you. And that term is used so globally and spread so thin throughout the world that if you just say the term Christian, some even believe that if they hear the name God stated that people that are listening says, "Oh, they're a Christian. They're a believer." really? What is the proof that they're a believer? We are so quick to call someone a believer because they say God, they say Christianity, they say Christ, they say Jesus Christ. If the truth of the indwelling life of Jesus Christ is the only thing that matters, in salvation for this earth you would think that the enemy would design and structure the entire world system to neutralize that truth grace has become the exact same thing as the term Christianity it does not mean life of Christ just as in the beginning that the disciples assumed they were locked and loaded. And Jesus said, I must go, so that it may come. And the upper room experience was then being exchanged, filled with the Holy Spirit. 7,000 people falling to their face, pleading for this exchange and getting it. You call a revival? That's a revival. But see, the enemy goes, this is just not going to happen. I am not going to let this happen generation after generation. So he built this religious system around Christianity so that people are running around talking about Christianity like it's some bowl of cereal. Do your devotions, pray, Sit in your pew, whatever the requirements are of normal Christianity. If you do these things, you too can call yourself a Christian. Now wake up, listeners. There are some of you listening right now that your mother and father are going to hell. And they call themselves Christians. And you're not doing anything about it. You are not double-checking to make sure they have the indwelling life of Jesus Christ in them. That they have made the great exchange. That you don't want your children, your parents, your friends to go to hell because they call themselves Christians. means nothing to Christ. The only thing that means something to Christ is that they're able to bear witness with a testimony of the moment that the great exchange happened in their life. I can guarantee you, those 7,000 people, when they walked away from that upper room, had a moment that they could talk about. You see, but when we talk about Christianity like it's some pleasant story that we grew up with, <laughs> it's fruitless. It's somehow camouflaging and making colorful a story that is going to usher you to the pit of hell. What's that worth? I'm serious. I am willing to talk to you about your moment of exchange. If you doubt it, if you question it, why live with that? There has to be a moment where you go through the eye of the cross. That's why he, Jesus Christ, called it a born again experience. So those of you who are living your life saying that I grew into my faith, I grew into Christianity, you are the ones I'm talking to. Because you're going to stand before Jesus Christ someday. I don't care who you are. Mr. Pastor. We're all going to stand before Jesus Christ. Some of us will be true bridal members. And others are going to go, whoa, whoa, wait a minute here. I preached, teach, did miracles. You know the verse. And Jesus says, be gone from me. I know you not. You see, that's a moment we should not want any fake cr- Christian to experience. You need to know that you are truly exchanged. You must know this. And the reason why people don't share their faith is because they don't know for sure. You can't shut a man or woman up who knows the great exchange. You can't shut them up. Janie reminds me all the time of Jeremiah. We have this movie about his life, the scene of him being in that cage raised above all the people and they couldn't shut him up. People must know. But the Lord has also made something very clear to me, that no matter how clear you communicate it, no matter how what video you put together, no matter what songs you put together, no matter what words that you write, the 90% are not going to get it. They're going to be bored stiff by you. But they will pay attention when they stand before judgment. And they will look back on those preachers and Sunday school teachers and parents and whoever was sharing the truth about grace and they'll remember, I should have listened. Now I'm going to hell. You see, there's no repentance once your lungs collapse. Once you take your last breath, there is no repentance. I don't care what the New Agers say. I don't care what the Universalists say. There's no opportunity of an exchange once your body shuts down. Impossible. So whatever the gateway is, time-wise, for you listeners, if you have a hard heart, what I'm asking of you is to pray and ask God to break that hard heart. Turn that heart of stone into a heart of flesh. Grace can send you to hell if you do not understand what grace really is. Universal grace is sending people to hell by the droves. Before this church service is over, thousands of people are going to die somewhere in the world. And they're going to be put in a holding tank called Hades. Thousands. Whatever it is you do every day for a living, you better get it straight real soon that that is not why you're here. Yeah, get your bills paid. But open your mouth and tell people the truth. Never, ever assume someone is saved, exchanged, who's standing in front of you using Christ's terminology like it's something out of a vocabulary or a dictionary. Don't do it. Test the Spirit. Find out if they truly know the real Jesus. Find out if they know what real grace is. So I guarantee the majority of the denominations and churches out there are throwing grace around like it's clothing you wear. And it works. People don't feel guilty after you look at them and say, But you're covered with the grace of God. Really? Is God a liar? Why would He cover someone with the grace, His grace, the grace of God, and then send them to hell? That is an illogical concept. But that's how we throw that word around. So we need to take a look at it. If someone would come and read for us Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 through 29.
1: Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new living and living way which he has inaugurated for us through the veil that is his flesh, since we have a great priest over the house of God. Let us draw near with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who has promised is faithful. Let us consider how to stimulate One another to love in good deeds. For not forsake our own assembly together, as is the one habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. For if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fear of a fire which will consume the adversaries. And anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses.
0: Thank you, Molly. May the Lord richly bless his word. Now I'm going to bring out some of the highlights of this passage, but I want to point out one in particular. Someone share with us the phrase, if anyone does something with the law of Moses, what does it say there again? Okay, so those of you who have been following our series, the first or part one of True Grace, we talked about how grace is not in the Old Testament. That is a very, very important thing to prove or people are going to do exactly what this verse is telling us. They're going to disregard the law. You see, Jesus didn't come to destroy the law or to get rid of it. He came to fulfill fulfill it. So therefore, if the modern church is using grace as if the law doesn't apply anymore, gracilism, then what they're doing is disregarding the law of Moses that God invested a great deal of pain in through Moses and the people. I mean, if we were to see truly what those 400 or a million plus, we don't know how many there were for sure. But the death and the, and the, and the torturous things they had to go through to for God to bring them and deliver them the law, starting with the Old Testament's Ten Commandments, Then the sundry laws poured in. Unbelievable investment from God. Then they had to build this temple, which is symbolic of our human bodies, by the way. The Ten Commandments is a symbol of our Bible. He is putting in place a major investment. And then all of a sudden, after a few generations, grace is erasing the law. The law hasn't changed, nor will it ever. It will be in place for eternity. The difference is, it'll be fulfilled. There's no striving anymore. So let's take a look at that scripture a little more carefully. Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus. Now, Janie shared a passage about the presence of God entering the holy place to the point that the priest couldn't even get into the building or the tent. That's called Shekinah Glory. If you actually got close to Shekinah glory, you would die. Your body would die. That is how powerful the Shekinah glory is. It was that powerful back then, and it is that powerful today. Our human bodies cannot handle it. So we have manifestations of the Holy Spirit in us. If we had full-on Shekinah glory going on inside of our bodies, we would simply die. Our hearts would simply explode. It's too much. And that's why certain people, if they went up and touched the Ark of the Covenant, what would happen to them? They would die. A lot of people view that as consequences for touching something they weren't supposed to touch. They couldn't handle it. The presence of God was in that Ark of the Covenant. That was the symbol of the presence of God. If they touched it, they would just die. It's too much. That's how I feel about certain encounters I have with the Lord through the week. It's too much. But I'll tell you what, that's how I want to go out be preaching so in tune with the Holy Spirit that that my body simply says, you stepped over the line, bro. You can't handle this level of glory. Come home. Then to be given a body that can handle Shekinah glory 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, forever. Forever. That's what you have to look forward to. But see, to receive this cleansing, it had to be done through this washing through the blood of Jesus. So we could have these manifestations of the Holy Spirit. So by a new living way, which He inaugurated for us through the veil, which was Christ's flesh. So when the veil was ripped that day, remember? Remember that great day when the veil ripped? And on one side of the veil was the Ark of the Covenant, the presence of God. Stay with me on this. And on one side was the side for the fleshly priest, who would make decisions God wouldn't support. And there was this veil between the two to protect them, not to protect God. (laughs) He doesn't need our protection. He doesn't need us, period. So for him to only get 10% of every human that was ever born for his son to have as a bride is okay with him. He doesn't need all of humanity. He makes that quite clear. So that thick veil, 18 inches thick, that's a thick curtain was Jesus' flesh. He was a protector. He was a guard for these people who thought they were religious. And they thought they could have the benefits of the holy of the holies. And it was that veil that was to protect them from ever entering in. And upon Jesus' last breath, God took that veil and He ripped it. One, symbolizing Jesus' flesh just got ripped. Two, there is nothing between us and the presence of God. Now it's up to us. I guess that leaves us with a question. Why aren't we living like that? Well, that's something worth talking about. We were made clean for a confession of hope. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy. Mercy and grace are clearly separated in the original writings. See, the law goes with mercy. Grace goes with indwelt living. And since we're not to set aside the law of Moses, mercy still applies to us, as well as grace, the very life of Christ. So then, regarded as unclean, the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified, and we are sanctified, and has insulted the spirit of grace. The Spirit, the Holy Spirit living inside you is grace. Grace imparted to us is done through the Spirit that indwelt us, so therefore we literally house the personhood of grace. That is critical for you and I to understand. It's not an action. It's not a coat that you put on. It's not a book that you write. So what would be the ramifications if we simply view grace as an action versus grace as a life of Jesus Christ through the Holy Spirit? Some of you pray for more patience. Oh Lord, please, please give me patience. Now you can add to the list after that. But listeners, listen very carefully. If you ask the Lord for anything, anything that is a benefit of grace, the life of Christ, you do not understand the exchanged life. You do not understand true grace. If you're saying, Lord, give me patience for this person. Oh, Lord, give me love for this person. Oh, please, Lord, give me a spirit of, of forgiveness for this person. Oh, Lord, please give me. You are so selfish in your prayers. It isn't about you. It isn't about you being patient. It isn't about you being kind. Those are all a part of the life of Christ. You don't ask for something you already have, knowing the truth, but denying the power thereof it. It comes from idolatry. (laughs) You see what I'm saying? When you are shouting out all these truths, but yet you're praying for patience, kindness, love... All the fruit of the Spirit, like there's some kind of individual grapes that you can attain. The fruit of the Spirit is a character description of the life of the Holy Spirit. One cluster. You get one, you get them all. Now, I know i probably insulted a few people because, honestly, if you evaluated your prayers and how selfish you request things about the specifics of stuff that God already gave you, It is a confession that you do not understand that life is singular. It is not broken up into categories and pieces that you get as you grow in Christ. I'm more loving today than I've ever been before. I'm more forgiving today than I've ever been before. Oh man, I am more patient today than I've ever been before. Those are confessions. Christ is not a bag of candy. where you reach in and grab your favorite pieces and enjoy those favorite pieces as you go through life. It is a life. It's a single manifestation. It is when the Holy Spirit moves through you, it is one life. You will be patient because He is patient. So I'm challenging you. Quit praying on pieces of the life of Christ. If you want to confess something in your prayer time, just say, Lord, I am not choosing to allow you to be released through me to love on this person. That would be more honest. Lord, I'm walking after my flesh now. I want to judge this person. But I know that you don't want to judge them. You want to love them. Well, I can't love them. So I'm just praying that I get out of the way so you can be released to love them and forgive them through me. That's a mature prayer. Not praying pieces on yourself. Because that's so incredibly selfish. It isn't about you having a proper response to people. It's about releasing the life of Christ onto that person. That's true testimony of the Lord. So here's what we're going to end up with. The early Christ followers borrowed and transformed this term till it became characteristic of their full beliefs. So, resulting in a church that uses grace as a license-based Christianity, which ignores the indwelt gateway, which is Christ in the believer. And that's our church today. Whenever you're talking to someone and you're using the term indwelt or Christ in you or the fullness of Christ in you or any any way that you use to describe this and they're looking at you and they may even say something to you like, well, I've never really thought of it that way before. Confession. Don't leave it there. Make sure they understand that it is the life of Christ in them. See, this is your opportunity of sharing the true gospel. It's not accepting that because to me those confessions could be a strong possibility they're confessing well I'm not saved and you're going to let that blow by not this boy I listen very carefully to every action of a young person every word coming out of their mouth or not coming out of their mouth or an old person same thing And I'm watching very carefully. Well, it leaves the impression I question everything about people. I do! I trust no human. Not even my wife. Because the enemy is deceptive. The enemy is trying to take our minds and fill it with deception. So trusting humans is worthless. Because everyone can fall. Everyone can be taken away from walking after the Spirit. But see, Christ in my wife is who I trust. I don't trust me. Christ in me, I do trust. And that is a mature way of looking at trusting people. Because how many times have you heard a leader fall and you go, Really? Him? We get it all the time. People we've known, powerful exchange life teachers, falling. Well, I say, well, of course. There go I. Humans are frail. We are weak. And as long as we use God like a slot machine for individual pieces of coin, we're selling off Christ just like Judas did. He is not a slot machine. He gave us the answer. He gave us the truth. He gave us true grace. He gave us the gateway, the opportunity, that eye in the top of the cross, the needle. He provided everything, but yet we're praying and pleading and treating God like he's a liar. Why are we asking for something he's already given to us? But if you're asking God... Take me through that eye of that needle of the cross. Oh, he will. Because, see, true people that go to hell won't ask that. They won't. They don't care. They won't even get what you're saying. I got to get stuff through an eye of a needle. Do you think that rich man understood what Jesus was saying? he died and went to hell because he didn't get it. Because he wouldn't sell the farm for the cross. Isn't that why? So you need to ask yourself, what's your farm? What are you not willing to sell off? But if you say, well, I'm willing to lay it all down for Jesus. That's a different story. Not that he'll take it. It's the willingness of the heart. He gave it all for me. Well, why wouldn't he expect that of me? He does. But our life is to make that a reality for us. That's working out our salvation. In handling the pre-Christian period of God's relations with Israel, Paul did not refer to Old Testament texts when it came to the word grace. This was a brand new word. This was a brand new life. As Christ was being introduced to the world, so was the word grace. Okay? There's no connecting those two outside of the life of God. Mercy is God. Grace is Christ. Holy Spirit is manifestation. That's what you got. Mercy is God. Grace is Jesus. Manifestation is the Holy Spirit. It was revealed through Paul that grace is not only found in Jesus Christ alone but that the life of Christ was the written letter of grace. Do you get that piece? He was the letter. The reason why you have churches believing today that the Word of God were written by mere men, and so now they're referencing the Word of God as not the authoritative Word of God, is because of this. That's what's resulting itself in our society. Grace was the letter. Christ's life was the letter written to us, handed through Paul to hand out to others. It's a life, it's not a concept. And this is why Jesus referenced himself as the word. He came to dwell among us so we could behold his Shekinah. Old Testament Shekinah. New Testament Glory. You see, he became the word so that we could behold the glory. The veil gets ripped. We receive the glory. So, people who fight worship, and I know I keep harping on this, and I will until I die, but people who fight worship are fighting that moment. They're so caught up in self fears and being inhibited and whatever. The Holy Spirit is bringing them to the point of going from word to Shekinah glory. And you can't stand in that. You cannot stop but lift your hands and sing out and shout. And even said, some of you are so rebellious that he's got to use rocks to shout out because you are embarrassed of me. You see, the flesh was ripped. So the Shekinah glory would blow us away to the point we just get caught up in the presence of God. But no, worship has become songs, musicians, making millions of dollars about the name of Jesus. Not to be ushered into worship. That's someone who does not understand that He is the Word. And He came so He could show us and introduce us to Shekinah glory. Grace like love, God is love, is verified as a personhood, not an action. It is not that Paul conceives of God as ungracious during the pre-Christian period. He knew that God was merciful before his son's return to himself. Mary, don't touch me. For I have not gone unto my Father yet. There was something else going on there. You see, Mary wasn't in the habit of touching Jesus' hand. She She was in the habit of embracing Him. Versus Jesus saying, Thomas, put your hand in my side. The embracing the fullness of God could not occur until after the ascension. And he was going to bring that shekinah glory in the presence of the Holy Spirit to where people would it affect their speech. And they would touch things and miracles would be done. Do you realize that you could take one of the napkins from Paul that he blew his nose in and give it to someone and they can take it to someone else and they'd be healed? Because it had shekinah glory on it. The very things true indwelt believers touch, people they stand by, people can sense this Shekinah glory. For he became the word of God to dwell among us so that we could behold his Shekinah glory. And when we get pulled off of this earth through a thing called the rapture, this world's going to hell in seven years. Won't take long. That glory lives inside you as a life. So who you talk to, who you stand by, who you put your blessing upon, what you put your blessing upon is huge. Grace is such a distinctive mark, 777, of the revelation of God in the personhood of Jesus Christ. He actually reserves it exclusively for us as into our believers. It isn't for the unsaved. 602-292-2982. Grace is not for the unbeliever. So quit coating them like you're buttering bread. It isn't for unbelievers. Paul uses the word grace as a denominator for the entire event and life of Jesus Christ and his ministry. When he says in Titus 2.11 that the grace of God has appeared for the salvation of all men, it can be understood as meaning that Christ has appeared or that God's decision to save people freely has been enacted in Christ's appearance as a person. When he says we are saved by grace, Ephesians 2.5, It can be taken to mean that we are saved by God's Son's life, Romans 5.10. We're saved by His life, not by His death. Since God can see into the future as to who will receive grace, Christ's life, He thus solidifies the doctrines of election. Christ knows your thoughts before you have them. He knows your decisions before you decide them. Three hours before you die. He knows. So he knows who is going to not receive grace. But see, the grace is that opening in the cross. That's what it is. You see, in order to get to the glory of glories, you're going to have to go through that veil. So he rips it open, saying, well, I'll take care of that piece for you. But you must come through me. You must come through grace. Any person or group that uses the term grace like it is an applicable action without connecting it to the life of Jesus Christ for all, who are not only uninformed, but most likely are those that Jude is referring to as marked for condemnation. There are some guys that I dialogue with that they argue endlessly over this word grace. And they believe I'm being too harsh with this word. But yet when I ask them to please explain to me how grace applies to unsaved people and then they go to hell, isn't that not a poor investment on God? Since he's all-knowing. They don't know how to explain that. They just know that grace applies to every human being. It does not apply to every human being. It applies to those who receive grace. It applies to those who receive the life of Christ. And it is available to all men. All mankind. But God just happens to know who is going to turn their back on him. He actually knows who's marked Do you understand this? That Jude passage that we're using in our commercial is so incredibly condemning. They're marked for condemnation. They've been pre-marked for condemnation. They're in the church. Those who enter the door and who are marked for condemnation are preaching a grace that is not of Jesus Christ. I have never heard that verse preached on in my entire life. I'm 60 years old, and I've never heard Jude 1, 4 preached on. Never. I've never read a reference in a book, and I've read many on the word grace because it doesn't match the present definition of grace. Grace marked for condemnation and they're preaching grace, those don't go together. Because grace is typically defined by most people as unmerited favor. They do go together and I do understand them in my mind. I can preach it because I get it. So you grace teachers, I would love to have more of a dialogue with you on this. How does this passage justify itself? The identification of grace in and with Jesus Christ exposes that the traditional and emergent definition of grace in Christian vocabularies are not only too general, but lead the masses away from receiving the life of Christ inwardly. Grace leading people away from Jesus Christ so. This is why this group is labeled marked for condemnation. They are willing to argue about the word grace to the point of it sending someone to hell. I'd mark them for condemnation too. The Jude group keeps the masses busy with the acts of grace while ultimately leading them into their own mark of condemnation, which means you're going to hail that's what it means. You're going to hell. You can't go past go or collect 200 bucks because you're preaching a grace that is misleading, literally moving the flock away from the gateway instead of receiving grace. The emergent church often defines grace as the undeserved favor of God. When we use such a definition, we allow the Hebrew word hen, mercy, to provide the final definition of Christian grace as mercy and thus missing the gateway of salvation Jesus Christ it's perfect it's the perfect deception you ever heard of the perfect storm I'm very fascinated by the concept of a perfect storm and I've watched movies and documentaries and whatever on perfect storm. And the reason why they call it the perfect storm is because when these cells come together, there's no one going to escape this. There is going to be a storm and it will be the largest ever. And that is exactly what the enemy has done with this word. It's created this, this perfect storm. And if you're in it, you're marked for condemnation. You're not going to make it. Your ship is going down. So I ask those of you who are teaching the grace message, are you one of these that are using grace to lead people away from the gateway? Or are you teaching grace as it is life? And it is only for those who come through the cross of Jesus Christ. This is a clever but twisted lie from the pit of the enemy. If we read that Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord, Genesis 6-8, or anyone else actually in the Old Testament, can we actually say they found salvation? They found Jesus Christ. They found everything about Christ Jesus. No, we cannot say that. Mercy is a action from God. Grace is a person from God. Now, biblical emergent definition of grace is to define it as the undeserved grace or gift of God. This definition not only is devoid of God's intended purpose of grace, but violently disconnects the word from being the word, which is the life of Christ. Even more abusive, it purports grace to be conceived and embraced as a thing, an object, and some kind of holy action that can be enjoyed by anyone. And that's why, if you pray for specifics, chunks out of the life of Christ, you don't get it. There's nothing wrong with you waking up one day and saying, Lord, please unleash your mercy through me, unleash your patience through me, unleash your kindness through me, unleash your love through me, unleash your whatever. It is Him being unleashed in the believer. Don't pray for more patience like it's a grape. Don't pray for kindness. Don't do it. You're acting as a four-year-old asking for dessert, asking for bread, asking for milk, asking for Why not just trust that your parent is going to feed you and clothe you? Do you see the difference? Spoiled children ask endlessly, 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 endlessly for stuff because they don't get it. I'm going to take care of you. (laughs) I don't think that's going to change. Now, if you perceive me as not taking care of you, let's have a discussion. But particularly for Jesus Christ, for us to accuse him that he's leaving us or forsaking us or holding back his character from us in us, is botching up the truth of Jesus Christ, being the truth. It's a sad day. Grace is only a gift to those who become indwelt by the Holy Spirit upon the day of their salvation. That is why the lion's share of humanity go to hell after Judgment Day. If God's grace applied to all, indwelt or not, why would he send some people to hell if grace is so powerful and transforming? It's not what grace can do. It's what, who grace is. This is how the universal church was formed, literally. It is the dynamic life of God breathed into his son so that his bride can be perfectly matched with his identity. You see, we as the bride of Christ have to look into the mirror and see Jesus Christ, our husband. As a woman needs to look at her husband and say, He is me, I am him, we are one flesh, God made that clear from chapter 1 to the last chapter of Revelation, but no, we don't believe it, and if we did, we wouldn't be running around proving that our husbands are incompetent, because they can't take care of us, that's our world. We call God a liar through our actions more than we do through our words because we're more embarrassed to say them with our words because they sound too crazy. So we just manipulate Christ as our husband by trying to get static substance out of Him. Give me a piece of this, Lord. Give me a piece of that. Give me another piece of this. But yet, if we were cornered about, do you believe that Christ is to be received in pieces, we would say, that's ridiculous. But then, all he has to do is watch how we treat others. Here's our identity statement for today. Even the definition of grace as being God's activity consistent with his life, though correct in identifying grace as God's activity rather than just an attribute of his nature. Still fails to tie the divine activity with the identity of Jesus Christ, who he is. It still allows Hebrew hen mercy to serve as the explanation of Christian grace. It is important that we define grace in reference to the activity of Jesus Christ because behavior comes from identity, his life, just as your behavior comes from your identity. His life is redemptive, regenerative, full of sanctification because of the reality that he is grace. All attempts to define grace are, of course, hampered by the impossibility of explaining in human logic how God operates in and by Jesus Christ through the spirit that is inside you. To understand true grace, one must be indwelt by it. Him. So those of you theologians who do such a great job explaining this stuff to me, they're just words. But if you have the life of Christ in you, and you're explaining grace to me, you're explaining Christ in you. And that will change people's lives. So grace that is logical to humans is not true grace. For it is the grace of God that can be known only as God is known, out of God, through Christ, into the indwelt believer and has nothing to do with ourselves. True grace is a topic we truly need to spend some time on. There are some of you who are listening today that God is about to lead you to the eye of that needle. There are listeners that are supposed to receive grace today. They're supposed to receive the life of Christ today. If you have not opened up the PDF I really encourage you to open the PDF go to the very last slide and consider praying this prayer. It's a salvation prayer. It is a a confession of realizing that the only way to have grace is to have the life of Christ. The only way to have the life of Christ is to go through this cross. To be co-crucified with him, co-buried with him, co-raised with him. So that you may have the life of grace. Consider praying this prayer. Next week we're going to talk about the reality of those who try to figure grace out through their own minds. And so I really encourage our listeners to continue to stay with us on this series because the deeper we get into our discussions on grace, the deeper the work of the Holy Spirit is going to occur. Although there may be some offended by my strong challenge of you might not be saved, if you were bothered by that strong challenge, then it may be something to think about. But if you were not bothered by it, and saying, wow, that preacher's hammering that one pretty heavy, or, or some general response, and maybe in fact some of you were praying for those who were listening as I was challenging people, that may be evidence the indwelling life of Christ is in you. But if you were offended, you can contact me at 602 292 because I would love to chat with you about why this is such a passionate topic for me of people understanding if they are truly indwelt by the life of grace of Jesus Christ.